Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions. Questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt. Questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Today, we are closing up our first season of Searching the Sacred by continuing our conversation around Advent. And to do so, we wanted to stick to Luke chapter one, but jump down to Mary's song. And so Lisa's going to read from a newer translation of the New Testament. So this is from the First Nations version. It's an indigenous translation of the New Testament, starting at verse 46. Um, and it's titled um, The Song of Bitter Tears. When bitter tears, Mary heard this, she was filled with gladness and her words flowed out like a song. From deep in my heart, I dance with joy to honor the great spirit. Even though I am small and weak, he noticed me. Now I will be looked up, up to by all. The mighty one has lifted me up. His name is sacred. He is the great and holy one. Her face seemed to shine as she continued. He shows kindness and pity to both children and elders who respect him. His strong arms has brought low the ones who think they are better than others. He counts coop with arrogant warrior chiefs, but puts a headdress of honor on the ones with humble hearts. He prepares a great feast for the ones who are hungry, but sends the fat ones home with empty bellies. He has been kind to the tribes of Russell's for creator, Israel, who walk in his ways, for he has remembered the ancient promises he made to our ancestors, to father of many nations, Abraham and his descendants. When she finished, they both laughed with joy. With hearts full of gladness, they told each other their stories. How lovely. I, I love the way that that um, pushes us to think about names from the beginning. So I think last time we talked about Elizabeth's name and Zachariah's name and Mary's name. I, my son actually just recently asked me, he's like, how come so many people are named Mary? Um, and he was asking actually about the new Testament. Like, why is there a Mary Magdalene and Mary mother of Jesus? Like we think about Mary as a common name now, but it was a common name then as well, because Mary is Miriam. Mary was a Greek, that's a Greek version of a Hebrew name, Miriam. And that Hebrew name has a meaning and a story that the New Testament Mary was really entering into. And it's a part of why she is called in this translation, bitter tears. So Miriam is Moses's sister and her name can mean a few things. It can mean rebellion and it can mean bitter. And you see that when Mary in Miriam's story in the old Testament, because she, her name is often connected to those, like the bitter waters or the waters of Marah. When you're hearing the story of the people going through the wilderness and Marah is in Miriam. Um, it can also be connected to the to idea of teaching actually in, in Marah. But, um, but I love that it's calling her bitter tears. Like, what is it to think of Mary's, like to start this off by thinking about Mary's name, meaning bitter or rebellion, the birth of the, 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 the mother of the savior, the one impregnated with Jesus, 
Her name is Bitter and her name is Rebellion. Well, it kind of shifts something in in some ways it um like Mary has become Mary mother of Jesus has become like she is elevated in lots of different um denominations religion um and it almost she becomes then this almost idealized version of a woman and kind of holding like bitter or rebellion from the beginning places her in a little bit of a different posture for me um it like we kind of like to think like she's this perfect this perfect person that was well maybe not perfect i don't know if we consider she was head centered in um Depends on your depends on your your faith tradition. Depends on lots of things, um, <laughs> but like she's but she, there's something that like she's chosen because of her virtue, and I wonder if she was instead chosen because of her capacity to hold like bitter things. Oh oh, say that again. Like, that was if, deep. <laughs> well, what if she was chosen because she can hold things that are bitter? That she can bear the rebellion because she's. Like she's a person who understands uh, what it means to be bitter. Or maybe that's what is virtuous, right? Let's yeah. do a little both and, you know, we, all, you, we, we talk about virtuous in this kind of perfection purity angle, but what if being virtuous is the ability, like you said, to hold hard things and to still see them through. I also think that seeing her as, bitter or as rebellious it makes having her in the genealogy of jesus from the book of matthew make even more sense not only because she's the mother of jesus but because she kind of seems to suddenly fit in with the other women mentioned um Mm -hmm. who all have mostly not of their own accord but societally and, and culturally they don't exactly have um the highest of esteem uh, because of some of the choices that they were forced to make or because of what life did to them. And so for her to be characterized this way um, kind of fits in line with people that we may have seen before. Yeah. I, I would love to read a quote um, that makes me think of, we have a program at 40 Arches called Daughters of the Torah, where we're really looking at those those women. And we look at Tamar, who's in that genealogy. And we um, and there's a woman who wrote a great book on women of the Torah called, Avi- her name is uh, Aviva Zornberg. Um, and she said this about Miriam, and it feels like it's tying together some of the things you guys are saying. So this is the, this is the original Miriam. <laughs> this is Moses's sister Miriam. But she says, the very origin of the story of the Exodus is signified by bitterness. Still nameless, and with this bitterness of her people suffering in her veins, Miriam rises as a prophetess. She redeems it, but not in a magical sense. She does not make it disappear. Rather, she redeems it, rethinks it. She sings it into a different place. Forever, her name will speak of it. Her song will rise from it, anticipating the future without denying present and past. Um, which as we now think of this Miriam in the New Testament, it really feels like she's doing the same thing, that Miriam in Exodus was a prophetess who sang, who held space for the people's bitterness of this 400 years of slavery and, and held that at the same time as singing something into the future. And there's a way that that name of bitterness sort of has that capacity to not just like sugarcoat things, 
but say like, here we are. And what does it mean to hope from here in this real place? I don't feel qualified to speak on this, but I feel like it's worthy to be brought up in this context. I have done some reading about and listening to the spirituals, the songs that came from the time of slavery in this country and on this land, and the prophetic nature of them to hold hope and pain at the same time, to sing about crossing the River Jordan into the promised land, but also to be singing about the deep pain and loss and um, despair. And so I feel like that's what Miriam was doing. I feel like that's what Mary at some level was doing. Uh, so I just feel like there's a, a reality to that, a truthfulness yeah. in there. Well, because even verse 53, like God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Like that can sound good, but what it's also saying is that means there's hungry, right? Like it's not, it's not denying that there's this state of hunger that exists, that there's people it's he's, he has brought down the mighty and exalted those who are humble. That's saying there are those who are humble. There are those who are poor. Like the, the naming of that exalting is also naming that those states are true, that there is a humility, there is a poverty, there is a hunger and God is entering into that and shifting things. But that also means that's naming that it's true. I'd love to think about like, as you name the spiritualist thing, this is one of my like pet peeves about this verse, um, about this section often called the Magnificat, which is in verse 46. Um, in my translation, it says, and Mary said, the Greek word, every place that it's used, it's, it's, um, epo. It means to speak, to tell, to command, to say. In other words, it doesn't say she did what? Saying. Now, I love I love how we, the translation Lisa read handled it as a song because I don't think it has to have not been a song. I think there was a beautiful way, but I but I also feel like something happens when we think of it as a song versus an utterance or a saying or perhaps even a word like prophecy. Right. Well, okay. <laughs> as you even as you're saying this. I, these are those moments where I'm like, oh, I've just never considered that before. Like, it would have been a little bit weird if she would have busted out and singing this, right? <laughs> like, it's her and it's her and Elizabeth talking. <laughs> so, so, like, I have never had the experience where I, like, create my own song and sing it when I'm trying to say something. But I do resonate when, like, the words just flow when they come mm -hmm. out. Um, so that is, that's an interesting thing. I, as much as it's, I've always heard it as the Magnificat, this is Mary's song. I hadn't actually placed it in the context of what's happening that, well, probably not singing really. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not, it makes me think of musicals when people like suddenly break in the song and it feels normal, <laughs> musical, but that doesn't happen in actual life. <laughs> it feels almost like it would be closer to if you're going to talk about it as performative, which I don't think it was performed. I don't think she was performing for Elizabeth or performing for anyone else. But if it's if you're going to put it in the level of performance, I think spoken word, it would be a better version of this where there's like. 
there's just something so deeply seated inside your gut and your heart and your soul and your mind is all in alignment. Kind of, I think Lisa, you, you were talking about this, like you just had those moments where like, it just comes out of you and yeah, you're not going to burst into song and you're not going to do jazz hands, but like there is something more powerful than just conversational speech happening. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's prophetic. It's I'm declaring this. I'm, This is entering the universe and you don't get to have it back. Like it it is out there now. And I think song is trying to honor the artistry of it, the poetic nature of it, because it's clearly poetic, just as Zachariah in in the next uh, section of verses, he's going to say something poetic, but we never call it Zachariah's song. That's my issue. It's Zachariah. It says he prophesied saying, and we don't call it Zachariah's song. We call it Zachariah's prophecy. And, and I wonder if there's a way to honor the artistry of both in a way that also equally elevates both as a prophetic word. I mean, when we're looking at it, the translation I have says, and Mary said, right? And then you look down further in verse 67, then his father Zachariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy but there's headings in my Bible, right? The song of Mary and the prophecy of Zachary. Well, somebody else added that. And that's actually not in the original text. It's, mm-hmm. it's not like the original author of this book decided, Oh, this is what prophecy is. And this is what singing is. Um, those are things that were added later to help give us structure. And so I wonder how, frankly, how gendered and patriarchal that system was that kind of in a way, maybe, hijack the power but i also don't want to lose the artistry like you said i mean there's something beautiful about naming something as a song i don't want to diminish you know songs i mean we all know how much the earth can move when a song takes hold and says something about where we are in life and so maybe maybe we should honor it that way and and elevate it but prophecy just has such a history versus you know singing um in scripture Yeah, well, and I wonder, I mean, what you're pointing out that's so helpful is to sort of pause and wonder how have how have those headers affected how we read scripture? Because they're not a part of the original text. Um, That is editor notes. When when there's a bold heading above a section, that is what the editor thinks we should call it, which affects a lot about how we like, I mean. I always think of Genesis three for this because it's often almost always the heading is the fall, but inside Genesis three, the word fall is never used. Not a single time is the word fall or sin used in Genesis three, the heading calls it sin or the heading calls it fall. This text does not. How does that affect how we read what happens if we bring that heading in as scripture instead of editor note? Yeah, it's hugely significant, and I, I don't think we should minimize it. But at the same time, I think there is room to say there is something dynamic about this being a prophetic song, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And and I, although I just said that prophecy has, seems to carry more weight in Scripture, we also maybe have Mary in alignment with some of the Psalms, which mm-hmm. are a significant part of Jewish heritage. Um, you know, one of the first things children would be learning is the Psalms and the Proverbs. And so they're going to be steeped in this tradition. So there's something beautiful about that too. Yeah. And I love to enter into the imagination of um, maybe this wasn't spontaneous. So like, what if 
Mary crafted this on her way to see Elizabeth. Like she would have had time on this journey. She's had this angel visit. Like imagine, like I put myself in Mary's spot. You have an angel visit and then you are like on, you're like with your caravan, donkey, whatever, like going to visit Elizabeth. It's a couple of days journey. Like, what are you thinking about on that journey after you've had this angel visit? You've heard that she is pregnant as well. And you're sort of putting together the pieces and, and then, and so you're maybe like thinking about this, it's crafting. And then you have the experience in verses 39 through 45 of like, oh my gosh, all of this is true. Like you were just witnessed by Elizabeth. So like, it feels like the time to bring it forth, but what if it wasn't just spontaneous? What if this is a co-creation of Mary's creativity and the Holy Spirit, like coming forward at the right time to mark the moment? I was, I grew up, I mean, part of what I think about this for myself is I feel like our relationship with Mary is so distinctly different according to what tradition in Christianity we grew up in, because I feel like uh, people I know who grew up Catholic, Mary is super elevated, but I grew up Lutheran um, in a way that actually really dethroned Mary because there was such fear of the Catholicism, like raising up of Mary. It was almost like Mary was a little secret that we didn't talk about because people were more like afraid of her being empowered. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I feel like there's something for anybody to sort of re-examine Mary, like what from our traditions do we bring in that we're afraid of or see her and what is it to like rediscover her as a person who's capable of singing this song or giving this utterance, whatever we want to call it, um, who is a prophet, who is bitter tears, who is a birther of rebellions, like what is it to see Mary in this new light? I think for me, very similar to you, there was a very strong emphasis that we don't want to elevate Mary too high. And so oftentimes she was not put down per se, but just not really even talked about much. Unless we were talking about like sex and purity culture, then it was kind of you know, we point to, you know, the amazing Mary and we somehow turned her into kind of the opposite of Eve in a way. And so, and, and, and other areas in the Bible maybe do that too. And, and so there's kind of this Eve versus Mary type mm-hmm. construct. And so I, th- I think that's what I really love about talking about her as rebellious, as a prophet, her as bitter tears is because there's like a feistiness. There's like a humanity to Mary. Mary is literally someone who is birthing the Christ, right? That, that's like who she is. She's birthing the Christ. Now, not to jump us ahead in our conversation or anything like that, but is that not what we are all called to do is mm. to bring forth Christ into the world, to, to embody Christ in the world? And so I think it's okay to have a little edge to us when we do that a little um recognition that this is going to be hard and it might cause some bitterness or it might mean that we're rebellious uh it might mean that we're you know having to push against the grain having to you know write music as opposed to you know conversational language because that's the only way we can communicate what's really going on inside of us is to have it come out in an art form as opposed to 
you know, like I said, a conversation. So I don't know. I think Mary is probably one of the cooler characters in the whole Bible, but we, we don't really talk about her like that. Mm-hmm. Lisa, what are you thinking? Well, I just, I think this is part of the, I mean, it's a struggle for women in general. Like if we're just going to talk about like womanhood, there are things that women do that when women do them are received differently than when men do them. That's just the nature of the world that we live in, in a Western culture. You kind of see it in, in the Bible because there's a way that like the song of Mary is, can actually be kind of put aside, like side by side with, uh, in first Samuel with uh, Hannah, but Hannah's is called a prayer. Right. Like there's, it's an interesting way that how we want to frame what women have to say matters because when we frame it as like, it's a prayer, it's a song, can it not be that and like prophetic at the same time? Like the power of the voice of these women should be magnified even greater because of the lack of the feminine voice that we hear throughout scripture over time. Mm. So like if we like if if you just change like if somebody said this is Joseph said this <laughs> this is Joseph's song the words all that they sound different what you pick out the the things that resonate sound different and so I think even just being aware of how we genderize like it's like a filter we have oh it's from a feminine voice I'm going to hear it differently than that it feels like that's where even in part like your voice Jason in like hearing it can be helpful because being aware of that, but like, what would you look for? What are you looking for? What are you sensing? Well, cause I love, I, I think we should go to that first Samuel passage and compare it a little bit. And in both cases, look at how we think about even the idea of becoming a mother and that we would assume uh, many of us that the song is about becoming a mother. Oh, I'm so glad to have I'm so glad to be pregnant. I'm so glad to write. Like you can think of what you would assume this song or prayer or poem is. And it is not about herself at all. It is about God bringing justice to the world. It is the only way it's about herself is that he has lifted her up to think her worthy of this honor. But otherwise, it's about him righting wrongs and, and, and balancing scales of justice, lifting up the lowly, um, taking down the proud, feeding the hungry. Like that's what she's singing about at this moment of her pregnancy. And we don't always give her or women in general the credit to be so big in our in what we're uttering about. It's not she's not lost in her own moment. She sees the scope of this. Um in a really powerful way, as did Hannah. So let so First Samuel chapter two. Um, let's flip there, because what happens in First Samuel is here we have a woman in First Samuel one who is wrestling and wrestling and wrestling with the fact that she feels called to bring a child to the world, but as of yet it has not happened to her, and you can just feel her sadness and her struggle, and is just. Um, resonant with many people and and the struggle that they have had that like these things are not in our control and they are painful and it's very painful. She's got, um, there's another, there's another wife that's like poking her about it. Like, Hey, I've had lots of kids and you haven't. And like, she is struggling in first Samuel one. It is painful. And she ends up doing like, it is 
we, we could have another study on that sometime for the podcast because she's she is rebellious in what she does <laughs> in chapter one she goes to places she's not supposed to go as a woman to like demand of god like what is up <laughs> there is something more here and that is like what are you doing um and after all of that she ends up giving birth to samuel and she and samuel is the first prophet of the lord this is a huge character in the narrative arc of scripture she he is the first named now maybe official prophet. I'm going to say like titled prophet, because we just named Miriam has been a prophet. There have been prophets before this point, but he's the first like a role of a prophet in the government of the nation of Israel, um, at which they need at this point, because they've kind of gotten the book of judges. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. They need a different sort of leadership. And God brings Samuel to start infusing a different kind of leadership. And Hannah is Samuel's mother. And as a part of being his mother, she commits that he's going to actually go be raised in the temple in order to fulfill this thing that he is called to do, which means she's not going to raise him. This thing, this, this child that she longed for and wrestled for and cried for and demanded to God for, she's not actually going to get to raise. So she still kind of doesn't have a child because she gives Samuel up. Um, and as she gives him up, as she is leaving him at the temple to not raise him as her child, she gives a prayerful song, a utterance, a prophecy, which again, like when you think of like, what would you pray at that moment when you're dropping your child off to be raised by Eli, who's not a great guy, by the way, <laughs> so you're like trusting him to the care of a priest who's gone off the rails. I don't know. Like, I think I would be, I would, I don't know what I would be thinking about. I would be very selfish at that moment. I would be mad at God. I don't know. Anybody else have a sense of what you would be thinking about? I don't think I'd be my holiest self. No way. There's no way. I mean, as a parent, no way. Um, and that's where reading these words that she prayed, my first thought was there are prayers. And then there are prayers and there are prayers that people pray. And then there are declarations that are more prophetic than they are prayers. <laughs> and certain church settings may have these more often than others. And when they happen or when there's times where there is a demand for justice and there's a prayer that is naming truth, um, there's something different that happens in the room when that prayer is prayed than when it's just your kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, a run of the mill prayer, like that I pray yeah. every Sunday, you know, uh, in front of the congregation. Like I, I do my best praying, but like I'm, I'm not like not present for that. But there's a different thing happening depending on the environment that you're in. And, you know, the environment that I'm in doesn't always push me to like pray, pray. Whereas, Hannah's pray praying like right and again it's poetic it's like there's something to calling it I mean it is a prayer it says she prays but it also says she says and it's poetic it is like a psalm like we might compare Mary's to a psalm where it has this thoughtful architecture to it and listen to how close it is so she says my heart exalts in the Lord my strength is exalted in the Lord and here and Mary's starting my my soul magnifies the Lord 
Um, Mary says, my spirit is rejoiced in God, my savior. Hannah says, I have rejoiced in your salvation. Hannah says, there's none holy like the Lord. Mary says, um, uh, you have done great things. Holy is his name. They're, they're very parallel, these two songs, um, utterances, prayers um, coming from these two mothers who are blessed, but not in the way we tend to think about blessing because they're both being given this giant sacrificial responsibility. And both of them are leaning into it with prayer prayers, <laughs> words like depth. And, and here, here in, in Hannah's also going to these words of like justice, the bows of the mighty are broken. Um, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. So again, that sort of way that she is calling forth this idea of lifting up the lowly in the same way Mary brings up that lifting up the lowly, re-tipping the scales of justice in both of these utterances. I'm very impressed with Hannah. I just, and Mary, both. But Lisa, what were you seeing as you went here? You took us here. If you've ever had um, like the opportunity to, I like, I think be with a, like in a, in a setting where somebody has to, has to pray from like their gut in a way like, where they need God to do something like they understand it's outside of them. And there's someone who knows the Bible, like knows their scripture um, where like they can pull it and it like they pray the scriptures in certain ways. That's what it feels like with these women, like not, it lacks the performance nature, even though it's so beautiful. But like when you, when you're with people who do this or who can do this, like you just know, like you actually feel like you are directly, like God is hearing them directly. Like there is like <laughs> this, there is this lifeline connection. I mean, in a lot of ways, like it's like I both want the ability to pray like that, but I don't want to be in the circumstances that it that they're in in order to get there. Mm. And I don't know that you get to that level of faith without being in those trenches. Hmm. Sit in that for a second. And in the trenches to call on the story, like that's what, that's what the trenches are doing for both of these women. And I think the kind of prayers you're talking about where, like, where do we go when we're in those moments, these women are going to the narrative of the history that has happened before them and the way they know God is, it's like, they're calling on, like, you are this way. So be this way. Um, which is a means you have to know what God is like, and you have to know what God has done before to call on that story and to call on that character and to say, I know that you are a God who is holy. I know that you are a God who lifts up the humble. I know that's what you are doing right now. And, and I'm waiting for you to feed the hungry. Um, thanks that I get to be a part of that story. <laughs> like that's, I, I think for me, what happens is my prayers are just much smaller than that. And they're also much more selfish than that. Like, I don't, 
like when I look at the state of the world right now, I don't call on God to do this. Like, I wonder, I wonder if we like going back to the, the Magnificat and Mary's words, like, what if we, like, what if one way to practice Advent would be to like, speak these words to God for our own time? God, you are mighty. You do great things. You, from generation to generation, including our own, fill the hungry with good things. Send the rich away empty. Like, I don't know. Like, what what kind of prayer would that be? Do we? How do we think God would work? Well, God does not work the way that I think God should work. <laughs> That's just like, yeah. I, like, I literally am like, mm, I don't think I can pray the prayer like this. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think I can pray it in that way I can't even sing that like 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 I'm in a particular place where that's I'm gonna need somebody to be the Miriam the Mary like I need to find people who have that and like learn from them sit with them and participate like I don't know it, it feels like it's like sideways participating because I don't have this in me right now mm-hmm. maybe some point I would but I today I don't you know, I was reflecting on, and I did a podcast for a different thing on the parable of the persistent widow and was just talking about what we can learn from that parable. And at the end of the day, at the end of the kind of the thought process, I was just really frustrated by that parable. Like, mm-hmm. why does this woman have to be so persistent? Like she's the the widow. She's got no standing in society. She's got an, an unjust judge who won't side with her when she's being harassed. And there's nobody there and the system doesn't work for her. There's no one defending her. And it's only because this judge is annoyed that he changes his mind. And then Jesus is like, and so God is not like an unjust judge. So if you keep praying, God will do what you want. And it's like, well, I was just really frustrated by this because I was like, if we know what justice should be done and God knows it, and God is a more just judge than the unjust one then why is it not happening quicker in our time? And the only thing I could come to was that there's a human element to all of this. There's human involvement. God has not decided that justice is just going to be done outside of, you know, human experience. And so God works within humanity to bring this about. And so I wonder if the power of Mary and Hannah as we've named, is to be prophetic, which prophecy isn't about trying to change the heart of God. Prophecy is about trying to change the people to get in alignment with where God is at. So I wonder if praying this prayer during Advent to God, but vocally in front of my family or vocally in front of my church or vocally in this setting where other people are going to download it and listen to it is not because we're trying to change the heart of God and remind God that he's a God of justice, but because, because God is a God of justice, we need to get about the work of justice and we need to get about helping those that are hungry and bringing the proud low and doing something about that because that's the work of a prophet is to speak to the people what is true of God. It makes me wonder about verses 51 and 52, whether they are what scare us from doing that, because it's, 
Like, do we know that we're not the widow? And in that, do we know that in this prayer, we are actually the proud and we are the mighty and we are the rich and we are the fed. And a part of praying this is to then pray that we're brought down. Um, which is then again, aligning us with what God is like to say, I am willing to be brought down in order for others to be lifted up. And I am going to persist in that prayer. That's a, <laughs> I don't think I'm the persistent widow in that case, right? I don't want to pray that over and over again, um, that I would be scattered, that I would be, yeah, not mighty. I don't know. I think of, I think of all of the like conversations on racial justice and privilege in the last several years. And that that feels like a big part of it is that we're those of us with more power are not willing to give it up. And what if we prayed and prayed and prayed as a way to be more willing to give it up and align with that God of justice? Ugh. Makes me uncomfortable even as I say it because it's like, because, yeah, I don't know. It also sounds too easy. That sounds like, what, what would God do? I don't know. I just feel like it's the space. Like I'm reminded. So one of the, one of the things that I have learned by working with women who are incarcerated is that they share this story of, um, like the story of how they got there. And for a lot of women, it has become, it's, they got there because they were just trying to take care of their family, right? Like they were just, they needed to make money to feed their kids, to have a place to stay. And somehow that through all kinds of things, whether it's sex work or drugs and, or drugs used to do the sex work, like all the different layers that happen. Like I, when I think about them praying this prayer, I'm on board. I don't know if you get to pray this prayer from a position of privilege. Mm. Like that's what I'm like wrestling with a little bit of like, I'm not sure. I don't, there's some way that we just take these prayers like they're ours, like that, that it's supposed to be a prayer that we pray because this is what Mary did. And so like we're following in the footsteps of her thing. And I don't know if that's, um, yeah, I just, it feels like I can feel the tension there as you were describing like justice yeah. and lack of justice and what that I wonder, is. well, I wonder if that's a different way to hold Zachariah and Mary's words side by side is Zachariah's is the word of the powerful and Mary's are the words of the powerless. And we side by side have two different utterances to pray according to that position. So Zachariah is a priest. He would, that would give him a position of wealth and power in uh, people. And he also gives an utterance, but the words of it are different. The words of it are about giving light to those who sit in darkness, about providing a way of peace, about being, about remembering covenant. Like the, the words are different. And maybe, maybe that's a part of the choice to make is to say, who am I, whose position am I more in line with Mary's or Zachariah's and which words maybe are then mine to pray. Lisa, I was thinking about the word mercy when you said it, because Mary uses the word mercy twice. And I'm curious from our traditions, like how we hear and understand the word mercy. How do you understand the word mercy, Jason? I mean, it's just been so synonymous with forgiveness 
that I don't really even know where to begin with that word. I think I'm still like floored by, I think the very beautiful comment to not, maybe this prayer isn't for me to pray. Mm. Maybe it's just a prayer for me to hear and bear witness to. Yeah. I almost feel like silence is my best option. Yeah. Well, maybe let's sit there as a question instead of the question about mercy. Like, what is it? How do we know when it's ours to do something and when it's ours to bear witness to something? Because even then in this passage, like Mary is speaking this and Elizabeth is bearing witness. What is it to take on that role of bearing witness and knowing, nope, this is not mine to pray, but this is mine to see? Well, somewhat that has to be proximity, like proximity. Like you have to be close to it. And for a lot of my life, that's not how I, you know, like if you, <laughs> you move away from it, you try to get yourself safer, you move further out. You, there's all different ways that we protect and divide from things. And this would hearken to it, be proximate. Like the only way, the only way that you witness somebody praying like this in live time is if you are with them in the trench. Mm. Like you can't be on the other side of the street. You can't be miles away. You have to be in the trench. And and that's an invitation. I don't know. It, it reminds me, as you say that, I was like, oh, I went to um, I went to an NAACP gathering during the trial of Derek Chauvin that was like close to when the verdict was coming out. And it was a gathering for like prayer and praise. Um, that was happening at the courthouse, like before the verdict came out. And it was different faith leaders from the Twin Cities praying and speaking about the time. And I was floored by how hopeful and confident their words were. And I, and I remember thinking, this is not the way I've heard my white pastor friends pray. <laughs> like, like there, like there was a lot, it's, it's, it's such a despairing time in so many ways. And we're like, oh, the work of justice, there's so much left to be done. And that is not how it was being prayed by these leaders of color who were standing up and saying things like, that was just for such a time as this, like Minneapolis was chosen for this work. We are prepared to do this work. It is our time to enter in. And I was like, this is not, and I was there to hear it, but I often am not there to hear it. Like, I also want to say that this is one gathering that I went to <laughs> that I can reference that I was in proximity. I'm very often not in proximity, but that's what comes to mind, Lisa. It was because I was there that I got to hear those prayers and I hadn't been hearing those kind of prayers before. My feed was filled with different kinds of words than that. My social media feed was not filled with the kinds of prayers that were prayed that day. And it was so powerful to hear them. I think there's something about not only proximity, which I think is probably step one. I think another step in this is that you allow not that you allow that sounds like i'm giving someone permission but i think in a position of power part of being in power is that you get to choose what is truthful and what isn't right i mean you get to decide what matters and what doesn't and so although it sounds awful to say it this way but 
as someone in power, you have to give space for that statement, that prayer, that prophecy to just be true and to not dismiss it, to not ignore it, to not shove it away. And Steph is freaking out and no one else can see it because this is a podcast. I was hitting my Bible. Well, because I feel like you just named one of the problematic parts of deconstruction. A lot of times, like we talk on this podcast, a lot of people who are part of our community have gone through some sort of faith, like construction, deconstruction, or looking for reconstruction. But there's some element of deconstruction that questions everything and sometimes then does not leave room for people to say things like the Magnificat, especially if they're a person who is not a person of privilege or power, to speak these really like faith-filled words. Like we don't, we don't let we don't witness it and let it be. Like I like it was my my first response. I'm reading the Magnificat, so I'll name it in myself. And I'm like, yeah, she says that he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. My first instinct is to say no to that. My first instinct is to deconstruct that and be like, that's not true. There's lots of hungry people. There's lots of powerful people. God's not doing this thing because I'm not practiced at just witnessing it. I'm not practiced at witnessing the person with less power speaking this truth about how they experience God. And I don't know. I feel like it's a good, like you just gave such a good warning to us, Jason. I think of like, be careful with the deconstruction so that you can witness people who need to speak something, speak it. I feel, Lisa, you've said something similar about some of the experiences you've had with people incarcerated, right? With how they're experiencing God and that it pushes on you sometimes. Oh yeah. I'd like there is, um, for a lot of the people, the way that they hold their faith, it's their lifeline. It is the way that they feel whole. It's forgiveness. Like there's this beautiful message that is tucked inside that has given them, like has brought them back to life in certain ways. And while it's like, there are times where I'm like, I can't believe you listen to that guy. Like you're reading that book. Let me get you a different book. <laughs> um, I have like, I, now my practice is this, like I have this practice of like Lisa, just, just affirm the good in what it is because i i don't need to push anybody to deconstruction that that stuff happens on its own i don't have to be i don't have to have my hands in all the different places what happens is they actually give me like these glimmers of hope cuz they they still have hope differently than i do and i need people to have that hope like i actually need them and their faith to like buoy me in my faith like where there's a way that we do it together. And I, it's necessary. And I actually need it from like multiple. I, I find it from people who have different faith and different religions than I do. They give me something different and more to think about in a way that it like expands my seeing and my experiences. And so I, there's a lot of things that I'm like, I don't, (laughs) I don't know if I believe that. And I don't know if that's true, but it can be true for you. I can let that be true for you. I feel like it's the embracing of imagination. And I don't mean imagination as in like fairy tale. I mean, imagination as in this is possible and it could actually happen. And when you get too far along or you move into places of power, you tend to lose imagination because you're defending place. You're defending the power. And so I see this a lot between people that are arguing for 
a lack of violence and people that are in military power. There's this sense of, well, if you only knew the atrocities of the world and what it takes to keep the peace, then you would understand why violence is necessary. And yet the pacifist is out there saying, we've got to stop being violent. And there's these, and, it, and it's, and I think it, there's a level of, because you're so far into the power structure, there's no imagination to see the world without violence. And I don't blame the person for that. That's the systemic issue. That's the, that's the sinful nature of like the world. Like I'm not, not a, not a person. There's not like a general or a military person that I'm pointing a finger at and saying, not at all. Instead, it's there's this system of power that's been created and there's no imagination to imagine a world that doesn't have it. And so the pacifist or the person that doesn't have any power who's calling for a lack of violence is just looked at as crazy or looked at as, oh, that's just pie in the sky and you just haven't seen the world. And it's like, well, no, that's not the case. It's there's a different vantage point that I'm coming from. And I feel like that's where when we're in positions of power, we have to be able to hold space for the imagination of hope to still exist so that maybe our imagination comes back and we can use our position to actually impact the structures and the systems in our world. I, that might take us back to the question on mercy that I asked that was not well-timed. So I'm glad that you pushed, <laughs> pushed back at the timing because Cut that part out, don't worry. No, but we don't have to, cause that's real life, right? Like, like I, I think it's right. So anyway, the, um, this idea of mercy is aleos. Um, and we often think of it as like, yes, a forgiveness from sin or different things. But like when we're thinking about the gospels where Matthew uses it, especially where Jesus talks about it is quoting the book of Hosea. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that that, that that's what Mary's talking about here, remembering God's mercy, God's shown mercy to those who fear him. I wonder if that's her already engaging in the imagination of life outside the temple structure, which is what Jesus is going to do. The temple structure has become embedded with the power of Rome. And it's time to, it's time for that to go. That's a part, huge part of what Jesus is going to do is to topple that system of power because those who are embedded in it are so embedded in it that they can't imagine another way. And they have forgotten life before the temple. They have forgotten a God that freed them from Egypt and wandered in the wilderness, like before any of that structure existed and calling on God's mercy calls to this part in Hosea in the prophets that says there has always been a way that God has operated outside of systems of power. And we call on that imagination right now as the birth of the Savior is coming. We call on a God who is merciful and desires mercy more than sacrifice. And that that Mary is, I, I love that Mary is doing that before um, Jesus then enters into that same language with his ministry when he is older. And I don't know that that's how we think of mercy, <laughs> that that whole like comparison of mercy versus sacrifice, which well, is a whole. Yeah, is it, as I say, I don't know if that's how we think of Mary and thinking about how she influenced Jesus and in raising him. Oh, 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 say that again and then say more. <laughs> well, how often do we think about the influence of Jesus's mother on his life, on his rearing, on what he knows? Like Mary poured into him. 
there's there's more to her than just being a birther, right? Like there's more than just this pregnancy. She is raising this child. And so I just imagine she poured a whole lot of herself into him. Like that Jesus is a reflection of his mother as much as he's a reflection of the divine. Oh, so good. So good. And I can't help but think to tie this in again to with Hannah, she's clearly not handing her child over when he still needs to be nursed and swaddled and taken care of on like a minute by minute basis. So when she prays her prayer, and that's maybe the last thing that that child heard from his mother, I wonder how much that had an impact on his trajectory and his story. Because Samuel, as we all know, becomes one of the most dynamic characters in the whole Old Testament. I mean, maybe second to second or third to like Moses and, you know, David or Abraham. I mean, he's right up there in the Mount Rushmore of dynamic influencers of the biblical story. And uh, I wonder how much his mother's words um, played a role in that. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that we think of that influence of mothers in in um, in scripture as a whole. Like, like we'll talk about that when we study. Um, lots of people name their kids. Um, now I can't even think of his name right now. The the eight year old king who discovers the book of the law. Um, Josiah. Josiah. I was like, why can't I think of his name? Um, but who was Josiah's mother? How did he learn to live that way? Right. Like who, like when we, when we're thinking about these, these characters, like who are their mothers and, and how, and to even take that to Jesus, who that's, that's fire. And Lisa, how did Mary affect who Jesus became? What, what did she pour into him? What stories did she know? Like, what is it to have a mother who points you to the mercy of God and who points you to a God who fills the mouths of the hungry? Like that's, that's who he's raised by that matters in his story. I was thinking about this really powerful idea of what are the words for us to speak and what are the words for us to bear witness to. And um, I just got this book. um, It came out this year called God Speaks Through Wombs. And it is written by Drew Jackson. So he is a um, black pastor in New York city. And these are all like spoken word kind of style poems on the book of Luke. And so, um, this is his, uh, reimagining of Mary's words from this position of being a black man in the United States in 2021, which I feel like might be words for us to bear witness to and have him reimagine them for us from his perspective. And so, Uh, It's called That Girl Can Sing. I mean, she can sing. She has a voice that can shatter shackles. Her tune is no soothing lullaby. It thunders down through the arena of time. Sing, Mary, sing. Like Fanny at the marches, like the high priestess of soul belting out her black gold. Like Hannah breaking bows bows of mighty warriors. You better sing, Mary. Watch out. The sound of her voice will cast them down, way down. No doubt they will try to quiet you, soften you, make you into a domesticated maiden. But we're going to play this song. Go on, Mary. Bless our ears with your sonic theology. Lift us up with your melodic doctrine. 
Magnify, magnify. This voice is magnificent. Ooh. I kind of want the audio, like the audio book. <laughs> I know it's probably, that's probably better than my reading of it. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, I, I, I did not have, I did the best I could. You did, you did good stuff. I just was like, oh, I can feel where the audio book might be helpful. But you also missed the, like the beauty of the, like, that is a language. Yes. Well, and I'm, I am loving this book because again, it's sort of bearing witness to a different perspective and a different voice on how it feels to read Luke one from the shoes of a black man in the United States in 2021, as compared to a white suburban middle-aged mom in the United States in 2021. I need his perspective. I need his words. I want to bear witness to how he's reimagining things for our era. And he's a great poet. And I think this is an example, and this is going to sound trite. And I, so anyone listening, forgive me for this. But when we talk about getting proximate, I think we obviously move towards relationship. But what you did there is you offered us a book, and we'll put the link to that book in the show notes so that people can find it. But that's a form of proximity to say, I'm not just going to read what's convenient or what's easy, because probably what's easy to read are the same authors that were handed to you um, that may look like you or at least a different gender than you, but are, you know, white men. And so it's easy to read what's convenient or what's been handed to us, but maybe getting proximate is searching for an indigenous translation of the new testament maybe getting proximate is reading a poetic understanding of luke chapter one and that's a form of proximity that is a starting point at least um it's maybe not full proximity but it's at least a starting point and and i think you know lisa and i were chatting for a minute offline here that proximity allows us to hear and then we have a choice to make. What, what are we willing to hear? And then when we hear, we have another choice to make. Now, what do we do? If I'm willing to hear and I honor what I hear and I have power, privilege, position, whatever we want to say, what do we do with that? There's, the, there's like a third step in a way of action and not settling for the way it is. Because the action could very easily be, which it often is, to just push away and say, well, I listened. Well, I heard. Now let me go get comfortable again. But what does it mean to take action that might be uncomfortable? Well, I love that. That sounds like a way to reimagine Advent. <laughs> um, how do I listen? I kind of want you to say it again. How do I hear? How do I get oh, proximate? How, how do I get proximate to hear? What am I willing to hear? And then what will I do with what I hear? Because mm -hmm. when I think of Advent, we often talk about Advent meaning waiting, but it's waiting in order to give birth. Like that's the idea is that it's a waiting that is a birthing. So what are we hearing that can give birth to something new in our lives? What does it make? How do we take space in Advent to hear and then to let something new be born in our lives based on what we hear. And if we're being like kind of taking it to the extreme, 
what am I incarnating mm. into the world? Mm. Right? What, what, what holy am I bringing into this space? What of the divine is being birthed through my life? Is anything divine being birthed through my life? Well, maybe, I mean, when thinking about, you know, the waiting, like there's a participating in this waiting because Mary is pregnant. <laughs> I don't, for me, I remember there was a lot of stuff I had to do to get ready. Um, like that was, it involved, like you're changing rooms and you're making space. You actually craft space. And then I, I still say, I have no idea what I did before kids with all my time. Like, what did I do with all my time? I must have wasted. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's funny how the really important things you make time for. And so as we, like, as you're waiting, where can you make space and time for something that needs to be born? Amen. Let it be so. This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that. Process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Sacred.